Good morning. I don't know about you, but I always feel a little bit safer when Tyrone comes straight from work. I I appreciate the effort that all of you have made to be here this morning. Uh, For some of you, that took great effort. And I hope you're blessed by being here. Um, I know that you're a blessing by being here. We're encouraging each other uh, in our fellowship today, for sure. If you're a guest of ours, we're especially honored to have you with us today. I heard about a guy who went to a job interview, and the interviewer told the fellow, you know, you have absolutely no experience in the job that you're applying for, and yet you're asking for a pretty sizable contract. The guy said, well, you know, jobs are always a lot harder when you don't know what you're doing. It's occurred to me that everything is a lot harder when you don't know what you're doing. We are in a sermon series that is calling it Meant for More. And we're talking about the idea that as Christians, we are meant for more joy and peace and love and, and really more Jesus. And yet I kind of get the sense sometimes that we don't know what we're doing. That we may be in over our heads that I know what I want it to look like, but I'm not exactly sure how to get there. And I'm not exactly sure how to achieve these things that that intellectually I understand that I'm I'm, I'm longing for. And I began this series several weeks ago, kind of anchored in John 7, 37, a statement that Jesus made during the the Feast of the Tabernacles. And my intention was to kind of hit that verse and move on. But every time I've tried to move away from that verse, I keep getting drawn back to that verse. So I want to share it with you one more time this morning. Jesus stands and a loud voice says, If anyone is thirsty, if anyone is discontented, if anyone is longing for something more, let him come to me and drink. Let him experience me. As the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. Out of his very core, out of your very being, These streams of water will flow. And then verse 39 tells us that by this he meant the Spirit. And if you're like me, again, you sort of ask the question, okay, what exactly does that look like? I mean, how exactly is that going to happen? Where is the Holy Spirit leading me? How do I I accomplish those things? And we talked last week about the fact that there is a rhythm to God's grace. And that... Grace and and love and mercy and forgiveness, all those things are promised to us as Christians, and yet we have a role in that as well. We've got to put ourselves in a position to accept those gifts from God. And this morning I want to begin with a pretty general concept. It's an important concept, but it's pretty general. And then I want to work towards sort of a specific application Because again, Jesus always taught not to make us smarter, but to make us better. Jesus always taught not just to share information, but he taught for transformation's sake. And the general concept I want to share with you this morning is something that you're aware of. We're passionate people. God has made us. We are designed to be passionate about something. You are passionate about something. I'm passionate about things. Now, we might be passionate about different things, but that's the way we're wired. I stumbled upon the uh, Westminster Kennel Club dog show this past week. Anybody else see that? 
I got to tell you, I love dogs. I love my dog. But those people, they are passionate about dogs. That's a whole other level. Now, you talk to somebody who's a competitive gardener. They are passionate about their roses. That's all they want to talk about. There are people in this room, some of you are passionate about your sports teams. I get it. Our hearts get set on things. But what God wants us to know is our hearts can be reset. Our hearts can be refocused. Not that dogs or flowers or sports is a bad thing. Not at all. God just wants us to know it's not the most excellent thing. Colossians chapter 3. Paul writes this. Since then you've been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Paul says, set your hearts on things above. Set your minds on things above. Paul is saying, Jesus isn't supposed to be some part of your life. Jesus is your life. Jesus isn't supposed to be one of your many passions. Jesus needs to be your passion. And what Scripture is trying to tell us over and over again is it is possible to redirect our hearts. It is possible to sort of reset our minds. Now, a lot of people don't agree with that. A lot of people will tell you, I can't reset my heart. People will say things like, I love him. I can't help myself. I know it's wrong. I know he's married, but, uh, but I'm in love with him. I can't help myself. Yes, actually, you can. You can go to God in prayer. You can ask God to reset your heart. And then you can ask God to... What steps might I be able to take to have my heart reset? Maybe that means spending some time with women who have lost their family due to a husband who was unfaithful. Listen to their story. Look at their family. View the heartache through their eyes. I'll tell you, a couple of those conversations, your heart can be reset. People say, you know, I can't help it. I can't help myself. I'm addicted to pornography. I can't help it. Yes, actually you can. Again, ask God to get involved in the process. And then ask God, what steps can I take to have my heart actually reset? Well, maybe it's find some other person that you can be accountable to and hold each other accountable to. Again, maybe it's talking to some men who have lost their families and lost their job, lost their reputation because of pornography. The focus of your heart can be reset. But as I mentioned last week, for a lot of people, they don't really want the focus of their heart reset. They talk about it. We talk about it. But when it comes right down to it, we don't really want our hearts to be reset. Or maybe just don't know how. Or maybe we never really have invited God and the Holy Spirit to be part of that process. You know, the truth is, God doesn't just promise us the things that we need. In so many ways, God promises and God offers the things that we really do want in our lives. I keep talking about the fruits of the Spirit in this sermon series. 
love, joy, peace, patience, all those things that, that we all kind of long for. And the world will tell you there's other ways to get those things. There's other ways to find joy. But God says, mm, not so fast. You try it my way. You allow the Holy Spirit to work in your life. And take a look at the fruit that the Holy Spirit produces in your life. And the joy that the world says, here's how you find that. God says, wait till you experience the joy produced by the Holy Spirit working in your life. There was a time in history when the Spirit of God was moving powerfully through a group of uh, believers. Acts chapter 5, some of those believers, some of the men, the apostles, uh, were actually arrested and they were beaten because they were telling people about Jesus. Read about it in Acts 5, verse 40. They called the apostles in and had them flogged. Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. The apostles left the Sanhedrin lucky to be alive. That's not what it says. The apostles left the Sanhedrin and decided to lay low until the dust settled. That's not what it says. The apostles left the Sanhedrin doing what? Rejoicing. They've just been beaten. They've been arrested. They've been threatened. They walk away from that experience rejoicing. Why? Because they've been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. That's history. That really happened. Now, most people's reaction to, to that situation would be fear or anger or intimidation. I'm not sure that I would leave a situation like that rejoicing. But these men have had their hearts reset. These, men's, these men focused. They, their focus was on Jesus. They loved Jesus. Their passion was Jesus. Their life was Jesus. And when they are identified as Jesus' people, regardless of the circumstances, they find that reason to rejoice. They realize Jesus was arrested. He was beaten. In fact, he was put to death. That didn't change anything. And they didn't stop anything. The love of Jesus, in fact, death couldn't hold them. So now these men are arrested. And they're beaten. They're, they're, they're going through the same kind of suffering. They realize that's not going to stop anything. And they use it really as a badge of honor. We are being identified as Jesus people. And they found that as a reason to rejoice. It really happened. Believe it or not, it still does. Now, most of us probably have a lot of growing to do before we would find ourselves rejoicing in a situation like that. But these guys had their hearts reset. They rejoiced at being counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the sake of the name. These were passionate people. And their passion was Jesus. Now, I told you that I wanted to start with kind of a broad concept. And the broad concept is your heart can be reset. That we need to be passionate about Jesus. But I want to be practical. And again, because Jesus was really practical. And I want you to be able to start the week with some strategies on just exactly how we might be able to reset our hearts. In fact, for the next couple of weeks as we wrap up this series, I want to share with you some specific strategies for, for resetting our hearts, for, for growing spiritually, for putting ourselves in a position to be more. And I want to start uh, with a pretty basic level. In fact, today's lesson is kind of a kindergarten level, really. But again, I think it's important because it's something that we all struggle with. 
And it's something that affects really every other part of our lives. And that is how we deal with anger. I want you to go back to Colossians chapter 3. We read the first couple verses, but let's pick it up in verse 5. Paul says, Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other since you've taken off your old self with its practices and put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge and the image of its creator. Why don't you look closely there at verse 8. Paul says, You must rid yourself of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language from your lips. Paul says these are the things you need to rid yourself of. You might have another version that says, put off these things. Put it off. Get rid of it. Rid yourself. In fact, that concept is so central to Paul's teaching, he'll use that phrase nine times. Put it off. And he leaves us very little wiggle room when he talks about the things that we need to be putting off, need to be getting rid of. Anger, rage, malice, slander. Filthy language from your lips. If you look at the book of Ephesians, Paul is going to use very similar language, talking about similar subject. Ephesians 4, verse 30. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. I think grieving the Holy Spirit is when we intentionally cut ourselves off from that flow that Jesus talks about. And again, Paul gets pretty specific here. Get rid of all bitterness rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. And then if you back up just a couple verses to verse 25, Paul writes, In your anger do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry. Do not give the devil a foothold. Interesting use of words there by Paul. It's very intentional with his language. In your anger, do not sin. Don't let the sun go down while you're still angry. And don't give the devil a foothold. Paul understands that we are in a spiritual battle. We are in a spiritual battle with the evil one. And what he is saying in this verse is, through our anger, we can actually give Satan a foothold into our hearts. Because of the way we handle anger, we can give Satan, the evil one, a beachhead into our lives. Now, here's what I don't have to tell you, but I'm going to tell you anyway. The chances are extremely high that something's going to happen to you this week that's probably going to cause you to become angry. I mean, we've all been there. You know, it happens to all of us. A mom is at Publix with her uh, two children. One's three years old, one's 18 months old. The 18 month is sitting in the buggy. The three-year-old's walking beside her. The three-year-old picks up a box of Captain Crunch. I want this. No, we're not going to get Captain Crunch. We have cereal at home. You know, and the mom's on a budget, and that's not the best cereal for uh, you know a three-year-old anyway. I want this. I want this. That three-year-old starts screaming. The 18-month-old picks up a glass jar of jelly and throws it on the ground. It shatters. 
The three-month-old starts climbing up the buggy. It starts to tip and a bunch of groceries go flying on the floor. If this sounds like a true story, it is. Ask my wife. Now that mom is picking up the three-year-old who is screaming at the top of his lungs, Save me! Someone save me! Help! And all she wants to do is get out of Publix. I mean, you know, you've been there, right? Emotions are raw. Oh, there, you just get this anger welling up in you. What do you do with that? Here's what you need to know. And this is pretty interesting, really. There's some science to this. Tremendous amount of research done. And believe it or not, the science lines up exactly with the way God wired us to be. There are some things that we can't control in our lives. There are some things that we just naturally react to. When you go to the doctor and you cross your legs and he takes out that little rubber hammer, he, you know, he taps your knee, your knee does this. You can't help it. It's just a reaction. When you blow in a baby's face, the baby closes its eyes. Can't help it. It's just a reaction. That is not the case when it comes to anger. Again, a tremendous amount of research done here. In our brain, these impulses form. And these impulses actually can be measured by neurologists. Again, we, we are fearfully and wonderfully made. But there is a fraction of a second. There's like a nanosecond between when those impulses form that we actually have time to ask ourselves the question, how am I going to react to this? We, we, that's how fast our brain works. We can, we can ask that question, what am I going to say? What am I going to do? Right here, right now. We can make a conscious decision. And it's in that nanosecond that I actually can invite the Holy Spirit into the process. That I can actually ask God and give God a foothold into the whole thing that's going on. Say, God, would you come into this situation? Would you give me some wisdom here? The next thing that comes out of my mouth, I want it to be honoring you. And I want it to be honoring Jesus. There's actually time for that. You can make a conscious decision. That's, that's how fast our brain works. You know, you're in some heated discussion with your wife. And you have this impulse to say something. And you know, if I say this thing, if I bring up this thing from the past, or maybe something that she's sensitive about, if I go ahead and say this, I win and she loses. This conversation is going to be over. It'll be cruel, and it'll be hurtful, but if I bring it up, I win. You actually have a moment, a fraction of a second, where you can say, God, would you allow your spirit to guide what I say next? Would you allow your Holy Spirit to be in this situation? We're actually wired to be able to do that. You're wired in such a way to be able to give the Spirit a foothold rather than giving Satan a foothold into our hearts. Last Wednesday night on Valentine's Day in our upstairs class, we talked about some of these things. And I actually, I passed out a card to the people in class. And, and I liked the thought so much on the card that I wanted to share it with you this morning. That was the card I passed out. Be careful with your words. Once they're said, they can be only forgiven, not forgotten. It's a pretty good statement. Once we say something, 
It's out there. Now, we can be forgiven of what we say, but people don't forget what we say. And you know that's true because you remember being hurt by things that someone said. Tremendous amount of power in words. Our words have the ability to, to heal and our words have the ability to hurt as well. You know, you, somebody insults you at school or, or at work and, and you've got this great comeback ready, you know, put you down and, you know, people have seen it and you got this thing, you could just mow them down with a word or two. But there is that fraction of a second when you can say, God, how do you want me to react? What would best show this group of people this, in this situation? How can I show Jesus in this? God's built into us a place, uh, a foothold for the flow of the Holy Spirit. And I know there's going to be times this week when you're going to be angry or frustrated or afraid. And it's going to be really easy to kind of cycle into anger. It just happens. In that nanosecond, be aware that God wants to be involved. Now, by the way you act, by what you say, by your body language, invite God into your heart in those moments. Now, I stand up here, I put a couple verses on the screen, I'm the preacher, I make it sound so easy, right? It's not easy. It is so much easier said than done. But here's the deal. If you blow it, when you blow it, when that impulse comes and you have an opportunity to either invite God, you know, give God a foothold or give Satan a foothold and you choose poorly, here's the neat thing. This is, this is great. God's going to send another wave of grace right after that moment. Immediately after that moment, here comes another wave of grace, another opportunity for me to get back into the flow of the Spirit. Another opportunity for me to say, okay, God, forgive me what I just said for what I've just done. How do I get back in that flow? What apology do I need to offer? What, what action do I need to initiate to kind of, to make this thing right, to, to allow your spirit again to flow through me? Now, resentment and contempt and anger, those are enemies of the Holy Spirit. And Paul will tell you that kind of attitude is giving Satan a foothold into your heart. Don't do it. Think about this. If you were incredibly wealthy, just incredibly wealthy, and you really wanted to get a hand, handle on your anger, you could go out and you could hire the world's best anger management consultant. You could make that person available to you if you were infinitely wealthy. You know who my anger management consultant is? The Holy Spirit. Available to, be, available to me 24 hours a day, seven days a week. That's just a fact. My anger management consultant is God's Spirit Himself. You know, when you read the book of 1 Corinthians, you see that there's a, a church in Corinth, and they had some real issues going on. They, they had a lot of sin in that church in, first, uh, in Corinth. In fact, I hear people say all the time, I want to, you know, I'll be part of a first century church. I didn't really want to be part of that first century church. But Paul calls him on it. Paul writes him a letter. And he doesn't pull any punches. And he calls out their sin. 
And apparently what Paul tells them in his letter, it strikes a chord with them. And the people in Corinth, these Christians, they make a concerted effort to have their heart reset. And they start addressing some of these things that Paul has has, uh, brought to their attention. So Paul writes them another letter. And we read in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul says this, Even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet now I'm happy. Not because you were made, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and and so were not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. Paul says there's two kinds of sorrow. There's godly sorrow, that leads to salvation. There's worldly sorrow, that brings death. And Paul says this godly sorrow that they had, that actually was a good thing. Because it made them more alive and more concerned and more sensitive and more reverent and more passionate and more responsible. And Paul says that's exactly what what my intention was. That's why I wrote the letter in the first place. Now when we talk about sin, any sin, including anger, we know that sin breaks God's heart. And we feel sorry for that. But what kind of sorrow do we feel? I mean, is it worldly sorrow? There's pain. Okay, there's pain. But if it's worldly sorrow and God's not in it, that just, you know, I'll feel guilty. And I'll be frustrated and I'll be discouraged. But Paul said ultimately it leads to death. But if it's godly sorrow, there's still pain. Don't let anybody tell you that Christians don't experience pain. But in godly sorrow, I invite God in. Now, God, what can you do in the middle of this? And when God gets involved, now there's hope. And when God gets involved, now that promise of mercy and forgiveness, they they become real. When God gets involved, there's restoration. There's transformation. That's what we're talking about, right? There's growth. It leads us to life. Let's wrap up this morning. Let me ask you a question, and I don't want you to answer it. Okay? <laughs> At least not uh, publicly. Anyone in here ever mismanage your anger? Anyone ever hear, anyone in here ever say anything that you look back and say, wow, I, I wish I hadn't said that? Ever do anything? You say, wow, I, I really regret that action. Have you ever withheld your love or your help, or your support from someone because of some hurt that they've inflicted and that's been festering in your life for maybe years. Listen, we all have been deeply hurt at some point in time by someone else. And we all, at some point in time, have deeply hurt someone else. We just have. What do you do with that? Where do you take that? Paul will tell you, you take it to the cross. You were talking about God, you are talking about anger. 
Paul says this in Romans chapter 1. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Does God get angry? Yeah, He does. He gets angry at injustice and deceit and greed and corruption the way a perfect being should. And the sobering, sobering realization is that there's a chunk of that there's a chunk of that injustice and deceit and greed and corruption that comes from me. I mean, I contribute to that. You now we say God, God is angry at sin, but well, God's angry at my sin. God hates my sin. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven. How? Not as we deserve. Not as we do. But on a cross. The cross is where you see the love of God and the anger of God fully expressed. The cross is where you see the redemptive power of God's love and God's anger. Jesus loved us so much and He was so angry about our sin that it killed Him. So now forgiveness and grace mercy, and a brand new life, a better life. Now all the more that we can think of is offered to us. But it came at a tremendous price. And Jesus paid it. We're set free from the guilt and the wrath of God because of what Jesus did at the cross. Now you think of that when you need motivation to set your hearts on things above. If you need a good reason to set your minds on things above, just go back to the cross. Think about what was accomplished at the cross. As you say, Father, I want streams of living water to flow from me. I want your Holy Spirit to flow through me. So that when Christ, who is our life, appears, we too may appear with Him in glory. We're passionate people. What are you passionate about? Jesus is a part of your life. But He wants to be your life. He wants to be your passion. Maybe this morning you've never quite uh, gone there. You know, you love Jesus, you know some things about Jesus, but you wouldn't define Him as your life. Paul says, He's got to be your life. It's got to all be about Jesus. And when He is, then all those blessings start to flow. Then God starts doing those things that God promised us that He would do. But we have a role to play. Maybe this morning you've never claimed Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Boy, we'd love to help you do that this morning. Or maybe you're just a place in your life where you need the prayers of a family who loves you. We'd like to pray with you as well. As always, there's going to be some people here at the front of the auditorium. If we as a family can help you in any way, come meet us here at the front while we stand and sing.